You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right, well, good morning, church. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin this morning really where we left off last week. We, we studied up through verse 66 of chapter 1 last week, and we're going to skip a few passages to get to chapter 2 uh, to set up the, the story for this morning. But just so you have some kind of fill in the blanks of what we m- moved past, uh, John the Baptist was born in that section of Scripture at the end of chapter 1 of Luke. Uh, Zechariah, who remember we said last week was mute, uh, the, the angel gave Gabriel muted him until the birth of his son. He names him Zechariah according to what Gabriel told him, and at that point he is able to speak again. And really that brings us to chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, we'll begin there. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So pause for a moment. The story picks up sometime shortly after the birth of John the Baptist. So if you remember last week, John was roughly six-ish months older than Jesus. Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary came to visit her at Elizabeth and Zechariah's home um, right after Mary's conception. And so Jesus and John are going to be roughly six months apart from one another. And so chapter two takes place sometime right after John's birth. And it says that Caesar Augustus calls for a registration. Some of your translations will say a census, uh, probably a better way of, of saying it. In other words, Caesar wanted to know how many people were living in the empire at this time. This is a common thing to want to know how many people are in the empire. How big are we? And typically, as uh, verses 1 through 6 describe, in the ancient world, when a census was called, you would travel from wherever you were living back to your hometown, to wherever you were from, and it was from there that you would do the census. So in this case, Joseph is from a place called Bethlehem, the city of David, and he does not just go by himself because since he is betrothed and Mary will eventually become his wife, she comes with him, and she is, of course, as the text says, pregnant at this point. Now, if you keep reading, uh, look at verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on the details of this part of the story, namely because last year we did a pretty deep dive on the birth narrative. But I do want to bring out just a couple of points to ruin your Christmas like I do every year. Um, and if you're new here, sorry, not sorry. Um, notice, first of all, that in this story, there is no innkeeper. There is no innkeeper. If you know the Christmas story well, you've been told it, you know, probably a hundred times. 
here's how it typically goes. Mary and Joseph arrive in town. It's snowing, right, like the Hallmark show. It's perfect snow coming down. And she goes into labor. And so they find the local Bethlehem La Quinta Inn. They go inside. The little innkeeper standing behind the counter is like, sorry, it's full. Everyone's in town for the census. There's no place for you. And so he just in a very cruel, uncaring, uncompassionate manner kicks them out. And they're outside now and they look across the field and behold, there's a, a, an abandoned barn. And they go there because there's nowhere else for them to stay. No one will take in this pregnant woman in labor and so she has to give birth in this, this barn. Uh, but if you notice in the Bible, there is no innkeeper at all. And that is presumably because, number two, there's no inn. Now, some of you may be shocked to hear me say that because we literally just read verse seven and it literally says there was no place for them in the inn. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, it's, it's really not the best translation of the word. It's the Greek word kataluma and it, it really is just a word that means guest room, uh, a guest room. Later in Luke 10, 29 through 37, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember, there's a man who's beaten nearly to death, and uh, he's in the ditch, and several people pass him, but the Good Samaritan finds him, and what does he do? He binds him up, he takes him, and he brings him to an inn, an inn, if you, you, you need to read Luke 10, uh, an inn, um, and he pays for him to stay for a couple of nights, and uh, he tells the innkeeper by the way, uh, I will pay whatever is owed when I get back from my travels. That word for inn in Luke 10 is pandakion. It's a word that literally means an inn. Uh, Luke chapter 2, different word, kataluma. It's a word that literally just is a guest room, likely in the family room or the family home of Joseph. So get this, there wasn't room in the guest room of Joseph's family home because of the census. Everyone in his family had come back. I have a picture for you to see of an ancient home, uh, and you'll notice that everything happens in the living quarters on the second floor. That the first floor, ground level, uh, is where you would, there's a courtyard area, and there is an area where you would bring in every night all of your livestock so that they would not be stolen by bandits or eaten by predators. And it was in that lower area where you would have a feeding trough or a manger to feed your animals, your livestock. So here is likely what happens. Mary and Joseph have been there, by the way, for a couple of months, probably. And at some point, she goes into labor. The guest room is full of family. And very reasonably, Mary, not wanting to give birth in front of Joseph's entire family, decides maybe we should just go down to the bottom floor where there's no people and we'll have some privacy. And there Jesus is born. Have I ruined your Christmas? Good, but you do need to update your nativity scene is all I'm saying. Because it's not a shack, it's not a barn, it's a house. Uh, and they do make these, you can, someone sent me a link last year when we talked about this, they are available. Uh, get a, I'm just kidding. Your, your nativity scenes are fine and wonderful, okay? They're gonna be fine. 
So Jesus is born. He's in the manger. He's in swaddling cloths. The Holy Family has Joseph's family upstairs checking on them, making sure they have everything that they need. And that really brings us to the principal text for the morning, a story about a group of shepherds led to the place, this home, where Jesus was born. And they come to see Jesus in one state of mind, and they leave having been changed to go and tell everyone what happened after. In fact, the song that we sang this morning, Go, Tell It on the Mountain, is a song inspired by our text, Luke 2, 8 through 20, about the shepherds. And just as an interesting side note for those of you who like a little bit of history, the song itself, Go, Tell It on the Mountain, has a very fascinating background. It was actually originally a slave song uh, we don't know when it was written or who it was written by. It was eventually compiled in the uh, late 1800s by a man named John um, Wesley Work II, who was a professor of history and Latin at Fisk University and the director of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, an all-African-American a cappella singing group uh, who uh, compiled and history tells us likely even composed some of the melody of this song and put it to paper and made it available for us to know today. And, and I bring that up because there's something to me very magnificent about the fact that a song about the joy of telling other people about Jesus to go tell it on the mountain was written by a literal slave. We talked last week about how joy is this unbreakable conviction of God's uh, uh, faithfulness and, and commitment to his people in the midst of whatever bad uh, environment you're living in or in the midst of whatever bad things are happening. And, and so it doesn't get much worse in my mind than the environment of chattel slavery. And so I think this is a very beautiful example of how the joy of the Lord and the hope of the Lord that someone in the midst of the suffering of slavery could write a song about the joy of telling other people about Jesus. And it's just that's an excellent illustration of what joy makes us do or pushes us towards. Now, that song, as I said, was inspired by our text this morning, Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. And, and this morning, what I want to do is I want to have a little fun with this passage. I, Christmas time is a time of joy. It's a time of celebration, a time to go and tell people about the joy and peace and hope and love of Christ. And so I've titled this message this morning, How to Go Tell It on the Mountain, Five Simple Steps to Encounter Christ. And what I want to do is I want to look at the passage, and I want to look at the experience of the shepherds, walk through it verse by verse, and, and I want to imagine what they would say to us if we came to them and, and we said, hey, you encountered Jesus, I want to encounter Jesus, how do I do that? I want to imagine what they would tell us based on their own experience. And so we're going to find that as we walk through this passage. One of the things that I appreciate about this story is just how outrageous it really is. It's just an outrageous story, right? It's full of details that you're just like, why? You know? Uh, like, for example, Mary has just given birth, literally, moments after she's given birth, and God's like, you know what she needs? Visitors. <laughs> that to me is outrageous. Like, that is, and not just friends or family members, not like members of the life group. No, God is like, no. I'm going to send the social rejects who everyone avoids because of how untrustworthy they are. That's who needs to go and knock on their door moments after she has given born, it, it birth. It's, it's outrageous, but it's, it's what makes it so powerful. 
So let's jump in. Five simple steps, according to the shepherds in Luke 2, for how you can encounter Jesus in your life. Here's what I think they would say first. Step one to encountering Jesus, be minding your own business. Look at verse 8. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So verse 8 tells us when the following events are going to take place. Okay, Mary goes into labor. She is laboring to deliver Jesus. While that is happening in the same region, there are men who were by occupation shepherds watching after their sheep, and it is nighttime while this is taking place. Now, what do we know about shepherds during this time in human history? We often romanticize the shepherds in the nativity story, right? They look like kind men with their little, you know, their little Jedi robes and their... And, and the reality is, is they're not nice men at all, historically speaking. History tells us that they were mostly very dishonest individuals. They were thieves. They were untrustworthy. We have some Jewish writings during the time of the New Testament that are outside of the Bible that talk about shepherds, that they were dishonest. They were social outcasts. They were unclean by Jewish standards. Beyond that, they were drifters. You don't really get the sense of this in the ESV translation. It just says that they were out in the field. I think the NIV does a better job of capturing it. It says they were, they were living out in the fields nearby. The Greek term agroleo, it's a word that, that literally means to live outside. So these guys were, they were lower class. They didn't have much money. They didn't have homes. They lived outside from field to field. They were not trustworthy. Uh, they would steal things from other people. They were unclean. They were avoided by most people. And yet... These are the people that God looks at and is like, I'm going to reveal Jesus to them first. They're just minding their own business. They're leaving people alone because they are certainly going to be <coughs> left alone by other people. And God looks down on them and is like, they're going to be first. I'm going to send them to see Jesus. I think if we were to ask the shepherds, how do I do this? How do I encounter the Lord? They would say, well, we were just minding our own business. That would be step one. And then I think they would say, step two, be ambushed by God. Be ambushed by God. Verse nine, it says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great joy and glad tidings. Now, they were filled with great fear. And it says, verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not. Remember what we said last week? Angels are horrible to look at. They are terrifying beings. Every time they show up, they're like, hold on, just don't be afraid, right? Fear not. And so they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then they say this in verses 11 and 12, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, Christos, Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So you got to get the picture here because it's kind of humorous when you really start to think about it. You have these what are essentially social rejects. They are hanging out in a field at night. They're taking shifts, looking after the sheep that they're being paid to watch. They live out in this field. They've probably got a campfire going because it's nighttime, and this would have been the only source of light. It was very dark in the ancient world, especially out in the country. So they probably had a campfire going so that they could see one another. They're sitting around minding their own business, and all of a sudden, they are ambushed by an angel. They look over, and kind of sitting in the circle, there's this horrible, terrifying-looking creature. And he's like, hold on, I can explain this. Just don't be scared. I look worse than I really am. 
And after a few moments of panic, the angel is like, listen, the Messiah is here. He's come. Christ has come. And God has invited you, of all people, to see him. And they're like, okay, well, where is he? What's he like? What's he look like? How do we know, how will we know when we find him? And the angel's like, well, he's a baby. Uh, he was just born a few moments ago. Uh, and you'll know it's him when you find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and he'll be lying down. And the shepherds are like, where will he be lying? Like in a bed, like in a castle? Because he's the Messiah, right? He's the, he's the coming king. And the angel's like, no, he's going to be more in like a feeding trough on the bottom floor of a just small family home. And, and they're like, oh, okay. And so I guess, I guess we, we go now? And the angel's like, yeah, yeah, now. Now would be good. I, I think it's fascinating to think about this because it brings up a point. And, and that is that God has a tendency to sort of ambush those who are just minding their own business. And, and I think that we like to think, especially now in modern Christendom, that God most often calls to himself those who are actively searching for him. That, I think if you were to just like kind of poll general Christians, we would agree that God has the tendency to go after those who are looking for him. God wants to employ people into the service of his kingdom. And so what he does is he looks around and he's like, who is already kind of wanting to serve me? I'll choose those people because they'll be the best employees, right? They want to be here. They want to be serving me. But when you read the Bible, what you come to find out is that often the, the people God chooses for service to his kingdom weren't looking for him at all. They were just sort of minding their own business. And God was like, mm, yeah, him. It's go time. Let me give you a few examples, just so you're not taking my word for it, right? Uh, how about Abraham? We all know Abraham, patriarch of the faith, great father of the Old Testament. When you read Abraham's story, you don't get the distinct impression that he was looking to become the patriarch. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Abram at the time, he hasn't been named Abraham yet, it says, now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then in verse 4, it just says, so Abram went seems like Abram was just minding his own business and God was like, hey, leave all of this that belongs to you and just start walking that way. And Abram's like, okay, and just off he goes. Hebrews 11.8 tells us he didn't even know where he was going, right? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't have Google Maps at this time, but it wouldn't have mattered. He didn't have an address, God was just like, go, and I'll stop you when you get there. What about Moses? Uh, Moses was a certainly special individual, but was that always his goal? Was he looking to be a, a special person? He was actually running from it. If you remember in Exodus, he kills an Egyptian man. He gets kind of found out, so he's scared, and he flees out into the wilderness. He meets uh, and marries a woman named Zipporah who is the daughter of a priest named Jethro, and God comes to him while he is there. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and it was there where God revealed himself through the burning bush. So there Moses is. He's minding his own business. He's shepherding in a field, by the way. Weird coincidence. And God ambushes him there, calls him into service, and the rest is history. What about David? 
Anyone remember David's story? Uh, David was the son of a man named Jesse, and this was the time when Saul was reigning as king of Israel. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, was told by God, Saul's time is up, he's a wicked man, you need to go to Jesse, and one of his sons are going to become king of Israel. And so he comes and he says, Jesse, bring all of your sons out, sort of in pageant style, so I can evaluate them and tell you which one, who is, who's going to be the next king. And so they come out one by one, and he's like, no, 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 no. First Samuel 16, 1, he says, are all of your sons here? Like, is this it? There's got to be something missing here. And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, what is he doing? Shepherding. Yeah, he's keeping the sheep. He's like, yeah, there is David, my youngest, but he's out in the field tending the flock. Weird detail there. And then uh, Samuel, of course, eventually sees him, and David blinks, and he's anointed king of Israel. What about the prophets? Many of the prophets had just like regular jobs. They were regular people when God came to them and chose them to become a mouthpiece for him to deliver usually bad news to usually very powerful people in high places. For example, one of the minor prophets, Amos uh, the prophet, Amos 1.1, it says the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. I'm not making this up. There's a shepherd theme here, right? Just minding his own business, out in the fields, shepherding the flock. God ambushes him. One more. What about Paul? Paul's not a shepherd, so we can there's no connection there. But but Paul is not only not looking to come into service of the Christian faith, he's actually trying to destroy it. He's trying to tear it down. Uh, He's a rising star among the Pharisees. He's on a path of destruction to kill every Christian he can find. Acts chapter 7 recalls the stoning of Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr in the Bible. And in verse 58, while they were stoning him, it says, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it says that he gave hearty approval to what was happening. Of course, he is eventually blinded by the light. Um, He's on the Damascus Road, right? The young people are like, what was that? Um, It's the 80s, man. Um, He's blinded, he's brought to his knees into submission, and of course, becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles. Now, what do we do with this? Again, the common misconception is that God only reveals himself to those who are already looking for him. And that's just simply not the case when we, when we observe the text, when we observe the Bible. Now, all of these individuals that I just mentioned, including the shepherds, certainly, in our passage this morning, they do all go on a bit of a journey, do they not? To search out God, to search for Christ, to search for whatever God was calling them to. But they only go on that journey after God ambushes them. In other words, the only reason their journey begins is because God calls them to that journey first. This is what Jesus meant in John 6, 44, when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The pattern here, overwhelmingly, that unfolds nearly every time is that the person is just sort of minding their own business, going about their life, and God ambushes their life and calls them towards himself. So that brings me to a truth this morning that I want you to think about. And that is this, that every spiritual journey begins with God's call. Every spiritual journey begins with God's call. It always starts there. If you identify As a follower of Jesus this morning, you need to understand the only reason you're here, the only reason you're doing any of this is because God called you first. Now, some of you may not identify as a Christian this morning. 
And you may be thinking, well, God would never ambush my life like this because I'm just too messed up for that. I'm not church material, right? And let me tell you about a church that goes exactly after people like you. They're about two miles down the road that way. And uh, I'm just kidding. You're here. You're home. You may be thinking, you know, God could never use me. I'm, I'm way too messed up for all of this. And what I would say to that is, welcome to the fold. You're exactly like the people God always goes after. Abraham worshipped false gods. He was, a, he was an idolater. Moses was a literal murderer. David, I mean, David waited until God ambushed his life and came into his life before he started behaving badly. He has the whole affair after all that and then has her husband sent to the front lines to be killed so he doesn't have to get found out when she's pregnant with his child. It's like a soap opera. Every time God calls someone into service to him, they're unlikely individuals and they're usually not looking to be used by him. And you may be thinking, I'm the last person God would ever call into his kingdom or into his service. And what I would say is, Yeah, just like the shepherds, just like them, no one would have ever thought they would be the ones God would call to come and see Jesus, the incarnate word, moments after he is born, but that's exactly what he does. Look at how the ambush ends, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among whom or among those with whom he is pleased. So after they deliver the news, or after the one angel delivers the news to them, it says, like in a moment, there's a multitude of angels, an army. That word host, it's a word that means army. There's an army of angels that are around them, and they are worshiping God. Glory to God in the highest. They're praising him. There's this angelic, heavenly worship service that unfolds around them. Almost a a, a similar picture to the the Revelation account of the throne room where the angels are worshiping the lamb who is sitting on the the throne. I mean, these are the most unlikely people in the world, and yet they are here in the midst of this like heavenly scenery, this worship service with angels because God sought to call unlikely people by ambushing them while they were just sort of minding their own business. So I think if you were to ask them, this is what they would say. They would say, look, if you want to encounter Jesus, do like what we did. Be minding your own business. Be ambushed by God. And and then step three, be skeptical about it and, and search for evidence. Verse 15, it says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. In other words, they're like, let's go, let's go see what's going on. This was all very weird. Let's go check this out. Now, the text doesn't say anything about this, but one of the questions that I have in this story is what did they do with the sheep? It doesn't say. I mean, the whole scene, the whole, you know, this whole passage seems to take place overnight. So Mary gives birth moments after this happens. They're in the same region. You know, there's no cars. So like same region means walking distance. So they, they're very close nearby Joseph's home. They make it there seemingly pretty quick because Jesus is still laid in the manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. Doesn't seem like much time has passed. All this unfolds in one night. And so what do they do with the sheep? The implication in the text is they, they did. They just left them. Their livelihood, the way that they would support themselves, they're just like, whatever. 
And I think this brings up a really good point, especially for those of you this morning who would maybe identify as non-Christians or, or just kind of on the fence. You're not really sure about all this. <clears throat> the, the point is this, that whenever you come to a crisis of faith in your life where this question of who is Jesus, what, what does this all mean? What does Jesus mean for me in my life? That question should be your first and only priority in your life. Some of you are wrestling with Jesus. You're, you're wrestling with trying to figure out where he fits in all this. Do I really believe this stuff? Do I really believe the gospel? Do I really believe that he lived and died and lived again? Do I, do I believe in the resurrection? And my words to you, and I think the example of scripture, not only here but in other places, is that you need to abandon everything else in your life until you've answered that question. What do I do with Jesus? What do I make of him? Nothing else matters more than that. Nothing else matters more than what you do with Jesus Christ. There's a lot of issues, big issues, important issues, weighty issues that you may have intense disagreement over with the Christian position. Real world social issues that you think are problematic. Issues like abortion. We talked about that last week a couple of times. Issues like the Bible's view of sexuality. There's a whole list. I mean, you could just name them, right? Hot button issues that people are fighting over on Twitter right now. None of those things matter at all if you haven't figured out Jesus. None of them. They're irrelevant. They make no difference in your life. Because here's the deal. Once you've figured out Jesus, all of it kind of has a way of falling together on its own. Everything sort of fits moment by moment. It may take time. You'll come to kind of figure out what to do with it all. But, but Jesus has to be the priority in your life. So understand me, man. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and you're not really sure what to think about Jesus, that is the priority. Forget about everything else. Forget about any other discussion, any other topic, any other problem, any other whatever, and focus on where does Jesus fit into all of this. And maybe you're skeptical about it all. Great. You should be skeptical. You should be very skeptical about it. The Bible makes outrageous claims. Someone lived and died and then came back to life and now has the power over life and death and can forgive sin? That's an outrageous claim. That is crazy unless it's also true. Either way, you owe it to yourself to act with extreme urgency in answering these questions. And here's what happens more often than not, is that you begin to seek after the answers to those questions. You leave everything behind and you go to search for those answers and you get proven wrong. That's step four, be proven wrong. As a side note, let me just say as your pastor, the sound of babies in here is a great thing. I want you to know that. If you're a young parent, yeah. If we don't have babies crying in the room, then we're doing something wrong. We like that. We like that. Number four, be proven wrong, verse 16. And they went, I know, she hates it. I'm sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> and they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. If they were questioning the validity of the angels' claims here, it doesn't say that they were, but if they were, they were proven wrong now because they were going to see if what the angel said was true. We're going to find a baby in swaddling claws in a manger, and there he is. He's right there, all the evidence they needed. My experience 
is that when people begin to look for the evidence of the Bible's claims, and they do so openly and honestly, they very often find it. I can't tell you how often this happens. This is the story of Michael Lewis, by the way, one of the people that we are recommending for eldership, which by the way, when you leave today, there are elder cards, members, if you haven't filled one of those out yet. We got a ton of cards last week, but if you haven't done that yet, we'd love to have you do that to affirm the elders' nomination of of both of those guys, Michael and Dan, as well as the 2023 budget. But Michael's story is exactly this. We talked with him Monday, and and he was just sort of sharing his testimony, which I've heard him talk about before, but Michael is uh, our sort of brainchild of the apologetics classes that we do here. He's actually teaching right now in B101 a class called Tactics on how to share your faith in just day-to-day situations. And uh, Michael is making a film right now uh, that is uh, remarkable, The Universe Designed. It's an apologetics uh, documentary that is going to be, I think, a very powerful tool for many years to come. He was the one that filmed the Fearless series for James, uh, both for the women and the men series that's going to be coming out next year. Um, Michael sought out to prove Christianity wrong. He uh, married uh, Christina, and she wanted to come to church, and he didn't really want to be a part of it, and so he was like, I'm going to prove Christianity wrong so we don't have to go here anymore. (laughs) And in the process, he got saved because he realized, I put all the evidence in front of me, and I don't really have an argument. This is overwhelmingly the story that I hear from people that when when you evaluate the claims objectively, often you find you are proven wrong. So get this, the shepherds encountered Jesus, and, and I think if, if they were to tell us a step-by-step process of how to do the same for yourself, they would say, be minding your own business, be ambushed by God, be skeptical, search for evidence, be proven wrong, and then I think this is how they would end it. I think they would say, and then step five, go and tell it on the mountain. Go and share it. Take what you know and spread it. If you're a 12-stepper, this is step 12 having had a spiritual awakening, you went and annoyingly told everyone about it. You ought to be annoying about it. You ought to drive people crazy about it if you really believe it. Verses 17 and 18, it says, and when they saw it, the sign, the baby, the manger, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So the shepherds arrive. I have to think Mary and Joseph were probably a little skeptical as well. They're like, why are these strange men here asking to see our baby? And the shepherds tell them, we had this experience out in the field. We were minding our own business, and this angel came, and it was crazy, and they told us this is what would happen, and they told us this is who the child would be. He'd be the Messiah. He'd be the Savior of good news for all people. And I love that they, they get a variety of responses. And, and I think this is just as a side note, again, a principle. Anytime you share your experience of God calling you into service, you are going to be met with a variety of experiences. Not everyone is going to respond the same, in other words. Verse 18, we find the first response. It says, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This word in the original language is a word that means to be amazed, to be full of awe. In other words, they were excited. This was exciting news. People were in awe towards God. She just gave birth, and this baby is clearly special, and now these strange men from this field over there just came, and they knew about it, and they saw an angel, and and, and it all just is kind of like, wow, this immediate sense of glee, right, that what an amazing thing that we've seen. But this was not the response of Mary. Mary had a different response. Look at verse 19. It says, but Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them, in her heart. So everyone else was amazed at what was taking place. Mary was sitting there trying to figure it all out. 
She's trying to put the pieces together here. That word pondering, symbolo in Greek, it's a word that literally means to meet and join. It means to throw together. In other words, she's thinking about her experience with Gabriel. She's thinking about uh, the story of Zechariah's experience with Gabriel in the temple, about how she came to Elizabeth and Zechariah's house and she was pregnant and somehow Elizabeth uh, caught the Holy Ghost and then knew that she was pregnant as well. And, and, and none of this stuff made sense. And now, now Zechariah can speak again after he named the baby Zechariah or uh, John. And she's taking all those details and she's throwing them together with this experience of the shepherds telling her all the things that they found out also through an angel concerning her child. And she's just trying to make sense of it all. What does this all mean? What does this mean? How do I make sense of this? She knew Jesus was going to be special. The angel told her, Gabriel said, he's going to be the son of the most high God. She knew that, that he was going to do some pretty remarkable things, but she didn't really fully understand what that was going to look like. That whole, that, this is the basis upon that song, Mary, Did You Know? The, the answer is quick, no. She didn't. She didn't fully know. She knew enough, but she didn't really know how this was all going to line out. This is an important detail that I think, again, you need to, to give some thought to. We have this idea that when God calls someone into service, whether that is a big calling or a small calling, that he's going to give you the full picture of what that call is going to look like. You're just going to know it all. You're going to have a full idea. Yes, this is what God's calling me to do. I fully understand it, and now I'm going to go do it. And often, what we find in the Bible is that the people God calls towards him rarely have the full picture. Now, here's why I bring this up. Because some of you are believers in Jesus Christ and God has called you as believers to share Jesus with other people. That's a call on your life, whether you choose to acknowledge it or not. God has called every Christian to go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that he has commanded. Matthew 28, that's the great commission. Every single one of us. You will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. I mean, this is clear. It is not controversial. God has called you all to go and tell it on the mountain, and you know he has. And yet, you realize you don't have all the answers either to this faith that you have committed yourself to. You don't have the whole picture and you think that somehow, because you don't have all the answers, that that disqualifies you from sharing your faith. Like, yeah, you know, I know I should, but I'm just not ready yet. I need to learn a little bit more. I need to have a few more answers to the questions that I have before I feel comfortable sharing it with other people. Because how can you share a faith that you don't fully understand, right? And what I want you to know is that apart from dying and seeing Jesus face to face, you will always have questions in this life. You will never have the whole picture. There will absolutely be moments in your life that will make no sense at all. In fact, I would wager the majority of your life is going to feel that way. The majority of your life, you're going to feel like, what is happening? What, I, I can't make sense of this. Things are going to happen. People are going to come into your life. People are going to leave your life. You're going to experience pain and hardship and trauma. You're going to be left trying to put the pieces together to make sense of all of this in light of what you believe and what the Bible says, and it's just not going to make sense. 
And, and you're not going to have all the answers until you die and go to be with him and know all things even as you are known, like the Bible says. But understand this, that should not stop you from going right now and telling it on the mountain. Wednesday of this past week, we had a celebration of life from Mike Hassler, member here at City on a Hill. Mike was a frustrating individual. If you know him, you know what I mean. Just a wounded man who wounded other people like, I don't know, all of us. But he loved Jesus. And the moment he breathed his last breath before his body hit the floor, he had a clearer, fuller picture of all things, more so than any one of us standing in this room. And it took death to get there. You don't get that till you die. And, and, and here's the deal. You don't need that to go and share. You don't need that to go and share the hope that is within you of the resurrection, of forgiveness of sin, of the gospel of Jesus. Verse 20, I love how it ends. It says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. They were worshiping, man. They were full of gratitude and joy and they were praising God. The reality is, is that when you examine a story like this and these five steps, every single person in this room, including myself, fits into one of those categories. Every one of us. Somewhere in these five steps, we are all situated. Some of you are just minding your own business. You're just living life. Some of you have just been ambushed by God very recently, and you're reeling from that, trying to figure that out. Some of you have moved from the initial shock of that ambush to now you're skeptical, and you're looking for evidence so that you can come up with a reason why you shouldn't believe it. Some of you have recently been proven wrong about your skepticism. And some of you just need to go and tell it on the mountain. Go and tell people about Jesus. Go and invite them to forgiveness, to grace, to mercy, to Christ. My prayer for you this morning is that wherever you fall in that spectrum of those five steps, that you would remain open and honest all along the way and that you would trust that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you and work in your life in a way that only he is able and that he is going to eventually lead you to Jesus if you're willing. But what you need to know is that unlike the shepherds, he will not lead you to a baby in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. He's going to lead you to a king who is sitting upon a throne, who demands ultimate subjection to himself, who demands obedience and repentance, but in return is gentle and kind and forgiving and compassionate and grace-giving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that you've put in your living and active word of God. The shepherds, the most unlikely people that you chose to bring into this Christmas story. Men who, by all means, were not looking for you, and yet you found them.
and you led them to the incarnate word, the Son of God in the flesh, to see and behold the Savior. And it changed them. And I pray, God, for those this morning who you're leading, you're in that process of leading, and I, and I pray that upon seeing Jesus as the shepherd Saul, that they would be transformed, that you would give them belief. I pray for those of us who know your son well, that we would never be ashamed of the gospel, but that you would ignite in us a desire to share it with the lost people that we know in a way that is radical and unapologetic and truthful, but full of compassion and kindness and gentleness as well. That it wouldn't be us by our power, but you by your power, by the spirit and by the word. I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for bringing the lost here at City on a Hill to yourself. May you remain central in everything we do and every word we speak, every conviction we hold. How we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. There are elder forms in the back. If you're a member and have not filled that out, please do that before you leave today. And invite someone, would you, to uh, Saturday, 1 p.m. Christmas Eve. We're going to have a great time. God bless you. We'll see you then.